children need to be in school, that they are essential to the mental and physical health of a child and to their academic success. Now, Ontario's plan to open and protect schools is focused on deploying millions of rapid tests to our schools and our childcare centers, enhancing ventilation and high quality PP, along with increasing access to vaccines for both children on a voluntary basis and staff. Well, it's about time, and uh, thank you, Minister Lecce, for waking up. Don't know where you've been for quite some time. Apparently, you've been gone for a while. Uh, but, you know, we're really talking here about the essential service that a school provides. And I believe that it doesn't provide any less an essential service than a mental health ward, psychiatric ward, or eating disorders ward in any hospital, emergency room in any hospital, a crisis center in any hospital. I don't believe that children can be used in such a way, played in such a way that we can decide when and how we engage them in what is normal socialized activity and regular scheduled schooling and education and taking it away, adding to it, taking away and adding to it, um, giving it back, taking it away and so on, uh, virtual, not virtual. And, and now to discuss whether a school is an essential service or not, it's hard to believe children in our community are in the care of parents who are struggling with their own mental health and trauma then further amplified with the pandemic. So associated social isolation, isolation and loss of their employment, intimate partner violence is up, addictions is up, homelessness is up. Schools are where they need to be. They provide nutritious meals, respite, structure, a place where they can be challenged, they can challenge themselves and have a chance to feel safe. Health and safety in the community. Schooling is essential to any community. Joining me this evening is Sarah Vance. She's a high school teacher in Toronto, as well as a member of the Ontario Education Workers United. Sarah, welcome to the show, and Happy New Year. Hi, thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. So, um, schools, essential or not? Yeah, I, I think really essential in all sorts of different ways, mental health ways, academic ways, and you know, the social and emotional development of young people in this province. I think it's so, so important. And we understand that more than ever two years into a pandemic. So as a member of an organization like uh, Ontario Educational Workers United, it's a, obviously a, an active uh, group of people who, who care about what's going on in the educational system. You know, I'm just a simple, one simple guy who's a therapist. I deal with kids in crisis. I'm a broadcaster. I get to share these kind of stories. I'm like ripping my hair out, ready to scream and yell at the top of my building. I can only imagine that you and your and your colleagues just might be just biting your fingernails and screaming at the top of your lungs for months and months now to say, you know, let the, let my people go, so to speak, and let the children come back to school. How has that been? Uh, it has been absolutely maddening, and it's really maddening also because in the midst of it all, politicians, the Ontario government is not talking to and listening to the voices of people who are in schools every day, whether that's, you know, the students who are in schools, education workers are talking enough to families about what's going on. So it's really, 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 really frustrating. And it's incredibly frustrating because it's great that schools are reopening, but they're being reopened in such a way that they're set up to fail again. We're being set up to flip-flop again. And it's just going to be incredibly difficult for students to keep on doing this back and forth and back and forth situation because it feels like the government is playing politics instead of making sound decisions. What do you mean by flip-flop? Can you describe what you mean by the fact that you think we're going to be open and closed, open and closed? 
Well, I think because, you know, we heard the the Lecce clip just before I came on, but a lot of what he's saying, which has unfortunately been the case for a long time, is not actually true. So, for example, the rapid testing. So we don't have access to rapid testing. In high schools in Ontario, we are being told that we will have access to a total of two rapid tests only if we show symptoms while we're at school. We don't have any rapid testing. And so what that means actually is that every single time we have any symptoms, so imagine a a lot of education workers, we're also parents, we have kids that are also probably in school, in daycare, et cetera. So if they're out of school, oftentimes we, we would have to be out of school anyways. And if we are experiencing symptoms or have COVID-19 or anyone in the household has COVID-19, we have to take, we have to be off for a minimum of five days because we don't have access to rapid tests. So you can imagine it's going to be an extraordinary crisis because Omicron is spreading so quickly and because um, you could have symptoms at any point in time. I mean, it's the middle of January. Um, Yeah, every kid has a runny nose and every every kid has a runny nose, right? If I had a rapid test, I could test at night and say, oh, thank goodness, you know, these symptoms are just, it's just a regular cold, nothing to worry about. I'll be back in school tomorrow. But I can't do that. So every time that happens, each education worker has to be off for five days. And so you can imagine that that's going to create an incredible amount of instability. And also because of the way that the plan is set up, there's nothing has been done about issues like congregating at lunch. There's no meaningful cohorting. The kids don't have the masking that they need to have access to. So we know that people need N95s at this point in large settings. And I'm really worried because we're putting people back into this situation. In the high school, for example, there's nowhere to go at lunch. So at lunch, we've got 600, 700, 1,000 people eating indoors, taking their masks off. And so Omicron is just set up to spread like wildfire. And that's going to result in, at a bare minimum, classes being open and closed, kids being on and off, their own teachers being on and off of work consistently, and likely schools closing down again. So Have you, I, have you seen... Yeah, go ahead. I'm worries. sorry, you carry on. I'm sorry, you carry on. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was going to say, so have you, you know, see, I just, we have such limited time and there's so much I want, I want to yeah. share. I could spend, I could spend the whole evening with you if they'd let me. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the, I guess where we're at is, you know, kids going to get sick. They're going to go home. Kids, teacher's going to get sick. She's going to go home or he's going to go home or they're going to go home. Um, you know, it's no different. I, you know, I got to tell you, I'm, you know, I'm an older guy. I've been around a long time. You, you sound like you've been in the community for a bit and been working for a while. Um, you know, People just got sick at winter, you know. Betty had the flu, and Jamie had a cold, and once in a while it was a bigger deal, and it was bronchitis, and you know, and we managed, right? Um, now, because of the spread of this thing, you've got so many more people with the same type of symptoms, um, and now we're seeing that, like what you're saying, is that kids, you know, the, the likelihood that kids are going to get comfortable in their skin, so to speak, being back at school could be threatened, you know, within several weeks' notice. You got to you got to see what I see. Immediately, unfortunately. So the impact that that's having on kids and families, I'm sure you see it directly as a teacher. It's it's you know it's unconstitutional. Like it's just it's it's how do you live with it, right? It's horrible. 
Yeah. What's, what's the solution? If you had the keys to fix this, what would that look like? I would say the solution, because we're in a situation that we have limited control over, right? So we are riding this tide of uncertainty. And so the solution is you do the best that you can do as a government to create it as much safety as possible so that you minimize the amount of unpredictability. Because for young people, that, like you were saying, that constant unpredictability, the flip-flopping, the not knowing what to expect, especially in the time that is already scary and uncertain, that's what we want to avoid. And so what I would say is, if as a government you know and you're being told, here are some things that you need to do in order to make schools safer and in order to make it so it's less likely that you are having to quarantine on an ongoing basis, parents having to miss work, like all the various really, really serious impacts that things have had, then you do that at an absolute bare minimum. So things like give us rapid tests so that I can test and education workers can test and be cleared and we can go back to work and we can offer increased stability. Um, offer kids to have higher grades of masking so that they are less, somewhat less likely to get sick. And I think at the high school level, one of the things that they could do that they did in September 2020 was that we had a cohorting system for high school yeah. students that was meaningful. So half the kids were in school for half the day. Nobody was in school over lunch. That cut risk very significantly, but it also meant that kids consistently were in schools, saw their peers, interacted with their teachers, had that sort of um, stability that they so need. We could have done that again, but the government has opted not to. So instead, we have this massive problem that we don't need to have, which is this extraordinary spread of disease that can happen during the lunch hour period, and, and we keep being told this is we're being set up for failure. So those are big, big things. And then, of course, the choice to decide simply to stop reporting COVID and sim simply to stop sharing that information, to my mind, is, is unconscionable. And it means that, you know, you're, you're not allowing for the control of the spread of Omicron to the best of your abilities. Nobody's saying this isn't easy, there's an easy cure-all at all. But I think what I'm saying is kids have been through so much. Families have been through so much. As the adults in the room, we offer the best that we can. And the best that we can is to give as much security as you can give in, in an unstable situation. So that's that's what has me pulling my hair out, like you said earlier. Talking to Sarah Vance, uh, she's a high school teacher in Toronto, as well as a member of the Ontario Education Workers United. Uh, thank you for joining me tonight. I'd love to have you come back. Uh, good luck on Monday. You got our support. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you and your, and your colleagues are truly our heroes. I know you've heard that, and it's enough to make you vomit, but you really are, because if our kids don't have a place to go for those breakfast programs and the lunchtime stuff, safe or not, and just a shelter, just a safe place to go where you know maybe mom and dad are beating each other up at home, they got to get out of the house, this is better than the back of a, a, a shopping plaza somewhere. So, um, yeah, good on all of you. John Abad, you are on the road to recovery. As I write this, I also know that the pandemic has been unfair to everyone else People lost their jobs, their businesses, and many face negative mental health impacts. 
And just like the frustrations with the school closures, many experts say that the majority of these things could have been preventable. These are the words written by 12-year-old Wyatt Sharp, who is my guest this evening. Wyatt, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Am I ke- what am I keeping you from doing? What would you be doing at uh, 945 normally on a Saturday night? Uh, to be honest, not a whole lot. Probably uh, just maybe reading some articles or just watching television. Not a whole lot. Oh, please tell me you play video games or do something like a kid does, right? Uh, not video games. I uh, pl- uh, hang out with my friends, though, and stuff, but uh, not necessarily video games, no. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll tell you, you're an excellent writer, and um, I really enjoyed your article, and I'm really excited that you're able to stay up late enough that you can hang out with me tonight. Um, Let me ask you something, man. You you wrote this article, and it's clear that, you know, you wrote it uh, with a lot of polish and a lot of pizzazz and a lot of a little bit of politicking from the sounds of it. You didn't really kind of turn the heat on in terms of, you know, how upset you you might or might not be. This is a show, and I'm the kind of guy where you can actually turn the heat on and uh, up a little bit. Um, the fact that the schools are opening and closing and opening and closing over the last couple of years, how has it impacted you? I mean, Wyatt, forget about the rest of the world that you've been carrying and writing about, but Wyatt Sharp himself, has it made you better? Has it made you weaker? Has it made you stronger? How has it kind of impacted you, if I can ask? I mean, I think, as you mentioned in kind of your opening remarks there, the majority of, you know, the reasons I I, I did stuff like this and, and I wrote my article was, um, for the you know for my peers and and for the people around me, not necessarily for me specifically, um, but at the same time, um, you know my personal experience with it has been um, you know obviously it hasn't been you know super ideal for anyone, but you know I've gotten through it and and it's been fine and you know I'm fairly lucky I've still been able to talk with my peers and such over over this uh, duration of time. So, um, and, and I'm, you know, not struggling with, you know, the content I'm being shown. I do fairly well in school. So, again, for me personally, it hasn't had, you know, a huge impact besides for, obviously, it, it's not super fun. You obviously want to be able to socialize with people. But, you know, the main reason I, I wrote this article was for um, just kind of seeing the impact that, it's having on my peers and also just making sure that my peers, um, you know, are, are able to um, still be educated in good ways and still um, be able to have good mental health. Um, because, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm doing fairly well, but just for my peers, I do want to make sure that, you know, for people that aren't in as good a situation as me, that they can still, you know, thrive and, and succeed. Wow, it's hard to believe I'm talking to a 12-year-old man. You're you're put together very well here. I'd love to meet your parents. Um, you know, not that I'm taking it away from you at all, but uh, there's got to be some good background there somewhere. Um, you know, you're talking about your, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm doing fairly well. You know, I'm a little luckier than most. Are you the guy that your buddies call or your friends call when they're not doing so well? Are you that guy that they can say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling and my parents are making me crazy and my father and mother are yelling at each other? Or, or you know, if, if you have that kind of group of friends where that kind of stuff might be going on, would you be the guy they call? Um, sometimes they'll, you know, FaceTime me. If we were doing online learning and they needed help with a question or something, yeah, they would call me but for you know the most part my friends are generally able to get through stuff like that on their own that don't usually require too much help 
Interesting. So your choice of friends or certainly the cohorts that you've become buddies with um, are typically people like similar to you? Because, I mean, un- understand, but, you know, why you got to understand. I mean, you're, you're, you're a smart kid. You got your own show. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You're a writer. You're a columnist. I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely way over your skis for a 12-year-old and doing an amazing job of it. But you got to recognize that most kids your age, most young men your age, young people your age, I'm not sure exactly how to address you, but don't be in a hurry to be an adult, by the way. Um, like most people aren't where you are. They don't have the voice that you have. They don't have the listenership that you have. They don't have the, the, the ability to write and have people read what they write. Where are they getting their voice? If not through people like you. To be honest, I think part of the reason I've been able to, you know, have the voice that I've had to be able to speak with the people I've had was because there's so few people in my age demographic that do this. Um, you know, type of stuff. And that's almost why my, my age at this point is, you know, a certain advantage, I would say to me, but then, at, you know, at the same time, it's not um, necessarily, uh, oftentimes people will point out that, you know, the work I do isn't necessarily um, great for my age. It's just good, good in general, which I always do like when people point that out, obviously. Um, so I would say that's part of the reason, um, like mainly in the sense of, um, you know, if, if my peers and such, you know, um, were interested in politics the way that, um, you know, I, I am and, and interested in kind of the civic engagement aspect of it, um, then I, I do think that, you know, I've been fairly welcomed into kind of um, the kind of journalism space and writing space and interviewing space. So um, I, I would hope that, you know, if any other young person wanted to, to do the same, that they would also be welcomed in, you know, the same respects that I was. What's the Wyatt, what's the Wyatt Sharp show all about? Give me an idea. You're the host of the show. Uh, and how do people get to it if they want to watch it like me? Uh, well, it's basically like, um, it's just like a, a show on YouTube. And so it's, I just speak with, you know, various uh, politicians. Um, I've been, uh, over the course of, you know, the school closures, I've had um, more time on my hands because I haven't been in school all day. So um, I've been able to be uh, doing it as a daily show. So I've been interviewing people daily. So um, just mainly politicians, journalists, commentators, um, for example, just like going back to, if you look at, um, you know, this week, some of the guests that I had on, I had on my show, Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston. I had Peter Mansbridge on my show. Um, I had Dr. Catherine Smart from the Canadian Medical Association. I had Robert Benzie from the Toronto Star. Jenny Byrne has got read. So I, I just speak to people who have interesting, uh, you know, perspectives on various issues and who have um, different opinions on different issues, who um, are, are willing to, you know, speak with me on my show about kind of the different issues that, that impact, you know, the audience of, of my program. You never reached out to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I just, hey. I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll make you a deal. I'll, I'll bring my mental health and addiction expertise to your show. And then when I need a, when I need a, a, a an expert, cause I would call you an expert on being a young person. I think that that's uh, by the way, you said, you know, you like when people say you write well for, you know, whether you're a 12 year old or not. Um, I think you're right. You're an excellent journalist age aside, but if you were a skier and you're writing about skiing, it would have a lot more credibility. So being a 12 year old writing about the life of a kid in school has huge credibility. So don't be, don't be afraid of that for what it's worth, but I'll trade you off. I'll, I'll do your show. If you do mine once in a while, because you're an excellent, excellent guest, by the way. Just so you know. Yeah, for sure. I'd be willing to come okay. back on anytime. 
Amazing. Okay, so let's get back to you a little bit. And um, uh, so back to school Monday, uh, we had an expert on a, a, a segment or so before you, uh, a teacher that was talking about what school is going to look like. She's predicting that you're going to be in for some of the time, out for some of the time, that there's going to be a, a, a surge of, of illness and virus spreading and so on. Um, what are you feeling? Are you feeling like you're happy to go back, whether it's a week or two or three, or you're feeling confident this could last longer? What are the politicians telling you? Well, I mean, they're obviously, you know, politicians speak to, you know, the population and to the people of Ontario through the media. So obviously they're just kind of telling me the same thing they're telling any other media and any other um, average, you know, Ontarian who pays, you know, basic and and brief attention to um, to the news. Um, So, I mean, at this point, um, it's kind of just, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I personally am looking forward to getting back to um, school on Monday. Uh, I will say, though, I do hope that, um, you know, the two rapid tests that they've promised to every student and, and teacher, the N95 masks to teachers and educators that they've promised. I do hope that, you know, these measures and these um, PPE and, and that all this stuff will be used as measures to ensure that schools can stay open for, you know, a longer duration of time than we saw last year and and the year before that, where, you know, it was kind of, as you mentioned, a constant kind of open, close, open, close. But at the same time, right now, we, you know, we are getting uh, children vaccinated. But at the same time, the vaccination rates right now, um, right now, it's only around 48 percent of children who have received one dose and only three point two percent of children who have received both doses. So, I mean, when you look at the number of fully vaccinated, that can't necessarily be used as, um, you know, a number who of people who feel comfortable with it because, you know, the interval between the first and second doses hasn't been long enough yet for children to get their uh, second doses. But even when I look at, you know, the number of uh, children who have received one dose, that only being 48 percent versus, so you know, the nearly, yeah. The, yeah, the, uh, nearly 48 percent versus the um, around 90 percent of, of adults who. Uh, and by the way, these are numbers um, that are talking about all of Canada um, yep. versus the, the 90 percent of, of people 12 and older, um, even with just one dose, because at this point, the majority of people aged five to um, 11 have been able to get their first shot if they want with with of course there always will there always will be some issues so yep. um, I think the education of that will also be key in order to get people back to school okay I've got less than a minute so I am definitely going to have you back you're an amazing guest and a wonderful young man uh, real quick what's the future look like for uh, for Wyatt Sharp what are you a politician uh, uh, you're going to be in my in our business you're going to be a, a broadcaster a newscaster you got less than a minute tell me real quick what's going on what are you going to be um, it's a good question. I think just leaving all paths open, whether it's, as you mentioned, journalist, um, someone actually, you know, making the decisions, whether it's, you know, perhaps a consultant or something on, you know, political or, or media issues. So there's public affairs, whatever the case may be, I think um, hopefully I'll just do well at whatever I choose to do. Uh, if I was uh, if I was the kind of guy that would put uh, money on somebody, I'd put my whole bank on you, young man. You're quite a quite a quite a quite a young man, quite a, an interesting individual, and uh, 
very articulate. You should be very proud of yourself. I'm talking to Wyatt Sharp. He's the host of Wyatt Sharp Show uh, on YouTube. Everybody better uh, get out there and watch it because this kid has stuff to say. And uh, not only is he a child, but he's someone with a great deal of depth about what the world feels. Wyatt Sharp, uh, he was on our show. We'll have him back again. So the new polling by Ipsos, uh, done exclusively for our uh, parent company, new, uh, Global News here, shows that almost half of Canadians plan to make a New Year's resolution. Of, all, of that, 48% of that group, 48% of people want to focus on improving their finances this year. But New Year's resolutions are almost almost always uh, bound to fail. Almost three-quarters of folks who set resolutions aren't actually able to follow through. And let's look at some of these break the breakdown here a little bit. Ages 18 to 34, uh, 57% want to focus on their finances, 59% on their physical health, 55% on their mental health, family life, 47%, work, education, career, all that stuff, 56%, and learning a skill or a hobby is 48%. And the 55-plus group, finances, 24%, physical Physical health, 39%. Actually, it's smaller, lower than the 18 group. I'm surprised. Uh, mental health, um, 23%. Family life, 26%, and so on. Um, on the other, on one hand, half of Canadians disagree um, that um, making year-end uh, contemplations or resolutions are something that makes sense. 19% agree that strongly that it's a good idea, 35% somewhat, and so on. But why are these resolutions so determined to fail for so many people, right? And people are focusing on major goals. You know, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to stop drinking, and I'm going to work out regularly. They have four resolutions, and they're trying to figure out you know, why they're not working out. We have an expert with us, actually. She's uh, quite amazing. Her talk with us about this. Uh, we got one of Toronto's top-rated life coaches with us. Her name is Lisa Jeffs. And uh, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure. So, you know, uh, first of all, how's, uh, <laughs> how are you managing with the beginning of 2022 yourself? <laughs> Well, it certainly has come in with a bang, <laughs> um, but I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I can't complain. You must, you must be busy as heck, right? We got all it's kinds of people trying to find some balance. It is. It's, it's a very busy time going into the new year. As people, some people set resolutions, but a lot of people have change on their mind. So yes, it, it does get quite busy. And the change that they have on their mind, is that just because they're sick of what they got or, or because they just think they could do better? Are people, you know, realizing that now with, you know, things being pushed at you in terms of really having inner focus, are people finding that they, you know, they're realizing now they can't escape like they used to from going to work and going to the gym and hanging out with their friends and going for a beer on Thursday night? Uh, people having to really look at themselves more closely, don't you think? Totally. Totally. When things slow down, we have really that opportunity to look at what's working and what's not working. And I think a lot of people come to this point where they want change because they are sick and tired of how certain things are operating in their life. It, it, it does take a lot of us to get to that point where it's like, okay, I can't continue this anymore. What can I do to change this? Yeah, and how much is in your control? What do you, you know, and that, that's the other thing too. I'm sure, you know, the, like I do with my patients, I'm sure you, you, you have to explain to people that there are, there are levels of what you can control and levels of what you can't control. How do you, how do you with your, with your clients, how do you sort of establish that boundary for them of what's in their scope and what's not in their scope? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say that because there's so many things, at least here in Toronto, that we don't have control over right now. 
so being flexible with the things you can't control and really focusing on what you do have control over. So, for instance, the New Year's resolutions that have to do with working out, well, we can't always control now if the gyms are going to be open. So what can we control? We, we can control our own space and what we are doing physically with our body. Um, so really releasing that control of what we cannot control and not seeing it as so uh, black and white thinking of it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Let's be a little bit flexible and see, well, how can I work with what I can control? There's a real benefit to the trying, though, isn't it? I mean, the, it's, it, the, I think for, for you, I'm sure, when you're talking to people, it's the motivation to at least do the trying. Um, oh, yeah. Wh- whether, it work, whether it works out exactly, I think it's great advice. You know, whether it works out, like you said, whether it works out or not, it, I think it's the doing of it that's really important. Um, how, do you think people's prior, how do you think people's priorities have changed, you know, compared to other years? What do you think, you know, you've been doing this a long time. You're, you know, one of the leading authorities in your field, uh, certainly in this country. Um, and, you know, the, the, question, the question is, how, how have you seen the, the change in what people are prioritizing when they're looking at things like resolution, resolutions and goals, uh, let's say this year mm. over the year before, or even the year before that, let's say pre-pandemic? Yeah, pre-pandemic for sure. I've noticed uh, a big change where it used to be a lot on external. So I want to improve my business or I want to, well, there's still the thing about finances. But what I've noticed now is a lot of people are doing introspection on general fulfillment in their life, uh, their relationships, the relationships with their family, their friends, but also the relationships they have with themselves. And this is not something I would see five, six, seven years ago at all. We're talking to, we're on the road to recovery. We're talking to Lisa Jeffs, a uh, leading authority on uh, life coaching and uh, just generally great advice. Give us a call here, 416-870-6400 or 888 We will take your calls and Lisa will do her best to answer. You've got one of the best in the, in the business here. So uh, call in and uh, pose a question. We'd like to uh, see if we can get some help towards you. Uh, our Ipsos polling finds that younger folks ages 18 to 35 are more interested in learning about finances and setting financial goals. Is, is that a trend that you're seeing as well, that younger people are now starting to, to concern themselves with the future where we typically wouldn't see that till someone in their maybe mid-30s being concerned about what the future might look like financially? I think there's definitely a fear that comes in with the, the younger generation. Uncertainty is definitely plays a factor in that. Um, you can't really get away from that now. Um, right. Whether it's changed dramatically since the pandemic, I don't see so much of that. It's always kind of been a concern for the younger generation. Obviously, things are not the same as they were 20, 30 years ago. So it's it's unnerving for a lot of these (laughs) younger people. What do you, um, you know, do you talk, you must have patients in your, or clients in your, in your practice that are sort of questioning this whole concept of university and college and what the future might hold and why bother and there's no jobs and even if there are, they're going to get shut down and, you know, it's how do you motivate, you know, someone in their early 20s to continue on a career path uh, when they're looking at that career path going, eh, I don't know, this doesn't look so great? Well, the first thing we look at is, what do they actually desire? So are they looking at career paths that they think they should be going into or they've been told it's a good idea and they're feeling anxiety around pursuing it? 
Or is there a career path that they can get into, such as, let's say, entrepreneurship, which I do work with a lot of entrepreneurs, where they have a lot of control over the outcome of that? So a lot of the the younger generation that I work with that are, are going into college and university, the first thing we look at is the alignment to what they are exploring in that. And if it is an alignment, then we really start tackling the fears that are coming up and challenging the fears. Um, people make resolutions every year. Um, why do so many of them fail? I mean, what's the, what's, what's the reason you, do you think that, uh, I mean, I have my own opinion, but what's the reason that you think uh, most people who set goals and resolutions and such for the year uh, don't seem to be able to carry through or find success? Well, there's a few general main reasons. One, it's they're, they're too vague. So setting a resolution of I want to lose weight or I want to save money, we got to get more specific into what that actually looks like. Uh, there's no specific plan involved. So if we go in and set a resolution like I want to save money, but we're not setting a plan, it's very easy to revert back to our old spending habits and our old behaviors, because that's what we are programmed to do. We're programmed to be habitual. Um, There's also a factor that I see, and I see this a lot in the entrepreneur world, where you're going from zero to 100 on your goal. So that is not sustainable for most people. This is about the long haul. So if these changes are important to you, uh, there's no rush to the finish line. So really implementing slow change and assessing what's working and what isn't working uh, can be the most sustainable path. Uh, But a big part of why resolutions tend to fail is that we have these habits and behaviors for a reason. So ultimately, they're giving us some kind of positive payoff. So if we remove them without understanding why we had these behaviors in the first place, it really sets us up to potential self-sabotage. Uh, that's great advice, man. I, I need to call you after this show. Uh, <laughs> the therapist needs a therapist. Talking to Lisa Jeffs, just a, just a wealth of information and great advice. Life coach Katerina Alexopoulos, and she's joining us this evening. She's a Toronto-based therapist who uses holistic approach uh, by integrating psychology principles with holistic treatments, including meditation, yoga, and energy work. Uh, She strives to support individuals to discover what brings them joy while cultivating an authentic and purposeful life. Wow. Sounds like exactly what I need. Katerina, thank you for joining us this evening. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Yona. I keep telling my wife, you know, we're working hard, we're doing all this stuff, and, you know, things are okay, but I I need to find more joy, right? Joy seems to be the thing that everybody, right? Yeah, totally. I think that's really the, the key to it all. Yeah, you know what? And it's interesting. When I first meet a patient, the first, you know, one of the my, my going forward lines is, okay, if I had three, if I could grant you three wishes, you know, what would they be? Don't ask me for a, a fancy car and a lot of money. And they'll say, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And, you know, eight out of ten won't ask for happiness or won't ask to be yeah. joyful. And it, yeah, it's, why, it, so why are we missing that? Why do we think that that's kind of like a given or maybe it's just not something we can accomplish? What do you think? Well, I I don't think it's a given for a lot of people, to be honest. I think a lot of folks have it in mind that success in life means checking certain boxes off. So it might be, you know, the job, a certain level of income, family, uh, a home. 
but we never really think about how we want to feel when we have those achievements in our life. So often people will say, you know, I'll be happy when fill in the blank and I'll say, but, but what will that look like? What will your day to day feel like? And they kind of, they kind of step back for a second and no one's ever asked them that before. Right. Because at the end of the day, they just want what they want, but they don't realize that when they get there, it may not give them the happiness they're looking for. And that's, that I think is the, is the key to the whole thing here, right? Is that, you know, when, once you get what you think you want and you get there and it's like, okay, so, you know, I had a patient tell me the other day, he's a very successful young man. We do a, we do a bunch of coaching work together, which grew out of our addiction work together. So, um, you know, really doing well. And he said to me, you know, I'm really successful. I made, you know, all kinds of money this year. I've, you know, bought a new car, bought a new house. I got all this. And I just, I'm just not happy. You know, my wife tells me we're having a baby and I'm really excited about it, but I'm just not finding the joy. What is, what is maybe we should define for some people what, 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 chal- what the challenges of finding joy and what, what does joy actually feel like for people? Hmm. That's a that's a really great a great way to pose it because I I think you know if I had to define joy joy is an experience first and foremost it's a feeling that you have when you're very much in the moment um, and I think it requires a certain level of mindfulness and presence to be able to even notice that we're having these feelings uh, we can experience joy but if so, we don't know how to tune in to our feelings then it's it's just yeah it was pretty good yeah it felt great that day. But we don't recognize what that really means. We don't, and, and, and a lot of people, even myself, you know, I, I, I find that certain things make me happy, but I'm really not sure where they're coming from. Um, you know, mm. and again, you know, being that I help other people find their happiness is sometimes, or not sometimes, it's obviously, I'm sure for you too, more difficult when you're actually the therapist to find your own, your own place, <laughs> uh, without having good therapy. So I'm really happy that you're on here because I'm still yeah. some free advice while I've got you. Um, you know, breaking up during the holidays though can be really difficult. And, and I'm looking at the stats and I'm thinking, okay, December the 11th. So is that people breaking up because they want to be single for New Year's Eve and go out and find somebody better? Or why do you think it would be the holiday season per se when someone would say okay enough is enough or this isn't working for me and I'm out you know I think for a lot of folks the holidays can feel like a bit of a pressure cooker Um, it's a time when we're often going back to see our families we don't always have the best relationships with them Uh, we have this really romanticized idea around Christmas and proposals and I think it can it can perhaps have us um, take a look at where things are at because if the sort of storybook um, romance tells us that, you know, a Christmas proposal or Christmas romance is is what we should strive for, it sort of gets us to check in with how are things actually going in my relationship? And for some people, maybe that's the time that they look at it and they say, hey, it's not it's not working. You, f- you find, though, that people, um, you know, I do, too. I-, I find this often with people that, you know, they know things aren't going well. They just kind of like sleeping dogs lie, as they say, um, you know, kind of don't want to kick the, the, bee- the, 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 the bees, uh, the bees nest or the beehive, so to speak, but just kind of leaving things as they are, kind of settling for. It really takes a lot of parts, doesn't it, to reflect and really want to make change, even if the change is difficult. Of course. Um, And often what I find with folks is that they will stay in a situation that's uncomfortable and perhaps painful until it becomes so painful that the thought of changing isn't as bad anymore. Right. So it's easier easier to get past what what they're feeling because they're sick and tired of what they've got, right? So let me ask you, it can be very difficult for people that are having gone gone through a breakup – 
especially, you know, this time of the year, uh, when everyone feels the need to comment on the relationship and what went wrong, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that, how does somebody make sure that they have a, a healthy support system? Because the last thing you want are people bugging you like your mom or, or your girlfriend or your buddies or saying, you know, what happened and, you know, it's okay. She was no good for you anyway. You don't want to really hear that stuff, do you, when you're looking for some support? Well, and that's just it, that last part that you said. You're looking for support. So I think it's really important um, to be intentional around who we're asking for support because we all have those people in our lives who can be, um, you know, a little bit negative or maybe the relationships that they've been in don't really go so well. They're not the kind of people that we necessarily want to take advice from. And yet when we're feeling low, we kind of sometimes we just reach out to anybody. So how, what I encourage people to do is to think about people in your life who you feel care about you, um, who when you spend time with or you talk to, you feel energized after. It's like they raise your vibration a bit as opposed to people who might be pessimistic or negative and you feel tired after you see them. That's not who you want to go to for support. Well, we're talking to Katerina Alexopoulos. Uh, will you come back another time? Because we're just running out of time, and I'd love to do more of this kind of stuff with you. I'd love. To oh have yeah, you come I'd back love on. to. Uh, that'd be great. It's so fun. we're going to have you back on, and we'll make sure the producers put you on the hot list. Uh, I'm talking to Katerina Alexopoulos. You can reach her at uh, at uh, KaterinaTherapy.com. K-A-T-E-R-I-N-A therapy.com. Uh, just a wonderful guest. And thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us tonight. Happy 2022. It's the year of you. And uh, yeah, let's do some more of this because I think we can change some lives together and make a difference. So, you know, if, if you had a breakup this year and you're, you know, you're looking for the right kind of support, Katerina is probably a good person to reach out to. And within your structure, as exactly as, as, as she said, you know, you want to make sure that the people that you're reaching out to aren't, you know, the naysayers, aren't people like I told you so, or, you know, I told you she was no good. I told you he was an ass. You know, it's, you don't want to hear that later, right? Um, it's not something we're looking forward to. We're not interested in hearing uh, what we should have known before. We just want to hear that it's going to be okay. I got your back it's all right let's hang out there'll be something else you know there'll be there'll, there'll be something better on the horizon for you you know think you make changes for a reason from you know everything comes to a to an end for a reason and you know so on you're looking for sympathy you're looking for someone to understand and frankly you're just looking for someone to listen and my wife taught me years ago pumpkin taught me years ago you need to be more like one of her girlfriends and just listen i don't have to fix it you don't have to fix things for people it just got to be there to listen for them. And sometimes that's fixing enough. By the end of 2020, about a third of the organizations had seen an increase in disability leaves, said Paula Allen. She's the global leader of research at Human and Human Resources, uh, Human Resources and Technology Company, excuse me, LifeWorks. Um, and requests for unpaid leaves of absence had almost doubled. Experts say even more requests for short-term and long-term disability are likely as the pandemic drags on, but that many people are intimidated by the prospect of taking an official leave of absence. Paula Allen's my guest, and she joins us this evening. Hi, Paula. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us, and a belated uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I'm sorry it was last minute. That was on me. We thought we were on the call this much earlier, but um, you're, of course, our family, so I figured you'd be okay with it. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Um, people are nervous. I, I'm talking to lots of people that are nervous. I keep telling them that when they're calling, saying, hey, you know, I need some help around my anxiety and my depression and so on, and we talk about their job and going back to work and a lot of people are nervous about calling in saying, I'm not feeling well in my head. They have no problem saying I got a scratchy throat or a runny nose or my tummy hurts. Having a real problem talking about the, the fog that they're feeling um, above their shoulders. Uh, what's your take on all that? 
Yeah, well, I think this is an unfortunate symptom of where we still are as a society. Very often, you know, people do feel that sense of stigma with respect to mental health, but they don't feel otherwise. Not as much as it was before. So we are moving in the right direction, uh, but it's still there. I, I really think that the, the, the difference needs to be made by employers, you know, setting an environment where people can be themselves in every respect, including when they're not feeling them well. When people call you, when employers are calling you these days, what seems to be the typical conversation around um, around the human support for mental health within their companies? Are, are they looking for ways around it? Are they looking to tackle it for the most part and come up with solutions? Uh, are they looking to figure out kind of what the, the baseline is or what the bare minimum might be for them to provide something that looks and smells like mental health care but not really? What, what's the sense of the people you're talking to? What, what do you get from them? Well, I think that that actually is, I think, a, a good news story. The the conversations around mental health and, and more employers are reaching out wanting to have this conversation in a very positive way. You know, really being very concerned about what's happened over the last couple of years in terms of everybody's mental health and well-being. I mean, it's, it's hard to ignore that this has really been uh, a, a big disruption in terms of our, our overall well-being and our anxiety and, and everything that you would expect. And they are concerned. So most of those who call us are really wanting to know how to best support their employees, how to support people in a respectful way, how to deal with the stigma that I had just mentioned before. There's a lot of questions that are questions leading towards positive outcomes, in my view. Uh, but having said that, those are the employers who call us. You know, not everybody really has that understanding yet. So I, I think shows like this is, are very important to make sure that awareness that this is this is something that is on the business agenda is are so important. I know I have people say to me all the time, hey, you know, I've used up my sick pay. Uh, you know, my wife wasn't well. She got COVID. I had to stay home and take care of the kids. Uh, I've used up my sick pay and my vacation pay. I'm not feeling well. Um, I really shouldn't be going to work, but I can't afford to stay home. Um, are companies providing for extended um, sick days, if you will? Because short-term disability, I mean, none of that stuff kicks in unless you're a couple, two, three weeks out, right? So if you're off okay. for five, six, seven days, four, five, six, seven days, you know, that's a might be a week, a cycle in a week's paycheck might be enough to devastate a family not having that income for that week. Uh, how are how are people supposed to get past that? You know, well, this is one of the well, the big political debates as well. You know, most larger employers do have coverage for that time in one way or another, whether it's sick days that you have as part of your benefits or or whether they discontinue your salary until some other system uh, kicks in. Uh, but there are a lot of employers, particularly smaller employers, you know, you know, five, four em employees, um, those who really are just not don't have have that 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 focus on benefits who might not. So this is a difficult situation because I, I do think overall it would benefit employees, even if a smaller employer is able to cover that short period of time. Many can't, and that's where the call from a political level has come from a number of people. Well, I think that's also what's driving people to go to work with, with an illness. I mean, I, I, I can tell you stories that I've heard in the last week, week and a half, where someone mentioned to me that they were at work and they uh, so on and so forth. Came, you know, some one of their coworkers came to the office. Clearly, they were sneezing and they were coughing, 
And, you know, it turned out that two days later they actually did get tested and they actually did uh, test positive, and then they had to end up closing down, you know, half the law firm because of the exposure that this person had. They were working in the mailroom. So, um, you know, people are making decisions to come to work not well because they can't afford to stay home. They don't have that extra backup. They don't have a little cushion in the bank. Uh, they don't have what's needed, and they don't qualify for that $300 benefit as low as it is because they may not be off long enough. I mean, it's, you know, even taking the time to go get a PCR test and standing in line and doing all that in a facility uh, can cost you a half a day. People are going to the doctor because it could cost them a half a day. Um, some aren't getting the shot because they can't find the time in the day to go and they can't afford to miss work. We seem to be really missing the, the cushion that we should be providing, I think, as employers uh, to make sure if someone's sick, they can stay home. These are extraordinary times. Um, do, do you think that that's something coming or... Are we going to just kind of let these people fall off to the wayside and, and, and keep seeing the, the spread of this virus by people being forced to go to work when they shouldn't? I think we'll get a, a fair bit more sophisticated about how we deal with this. So I, I think the, the pandemic has really made us aware of how important it is to make sure that if, if you are a risk to yourself or someone else, you shouldn't be working. I mean, it's not it's not worth it to actually put yourself or somebody else at risk, and it can have reverberating consequences. So that's something that we should have all known before, but the pandemic really brought it to the forefront. But the other thing is that um, if employers are being creative. You know, sometimes you're not able to go out and you, you might infect someone else. Or even if it's from a mental health point of view, you might, you might not be able to do all of your job, but you might be able to do some of it. And there's all sorts of research that says that, you know, if you can adjust the job, you know, maybe the person doesn't come into the workplace. Maybe they can do something at home. Maybe they're not doing the full job because, you know, you can't have them interface with other people, but they're doing part of the job. That sometimes works well, particularly if it's a long-term issue. But, of course, there's always those situations where you just need to take that time off, and it, it, it does need to be available. And you know what, if, if companies are actually doing the math, I mean, that's not my strength, but if companies are actually doing the math, they're going to come to the conclusion that it's worth paying someone to stay home for a week than, it, than it's going to be to have the office closed down for 10 days because everyone has to go home. Uh, okay. You'd think that that would make sense, right? Um, you know, the, the, the mental health piece, let's get to that for a second. It's, you know, if you're sick with COVID or you got a virus, that's one thing. Um, I have some patients that have called, some people have called, talk about their situation because their doctor, uh, they, they're required to get a doctor's letter around their mental health in order to actually qualify for the short-term disability uh, or even time off based on mental health. And a lot of people can't get in to see someone who's, you know, who's licensed and, and in a position to do a proper uh, assessment diagnosis or write the letter, so to speak. Um, it becomes a problem. I had somebody say to me, I can't get in to see my doctor for three weeks and my employer is saying, if I don't provide a letter in the next 72 hours, I got to come back to work or be or, or face the fact I might be fired. What, how, how is that going to work out for people? Do you think? Well, I, I think number one um, is if you're not able to see you know, your doctor, you're not able to get it's not, it's not just a medical note issue. You're not getting care. You know, and I, and I think that's the thing that kind of, you know, it gets into my antenna. Um there are ways you can get help from a mental health point of view. Uh, that would be first and foremost in my mind. Uh, the Ontario government has a program, my ICBT, that, that, that's uh, free, uh, that's accessible, that's online. 
Uh, you should really contact your doctor and make sure that other arrangements are made if possible, video counseling or video consult, uh, either with them or with a colleague if they can't see you. So, you know, hopefully, and it's very hard when you're actually feeling not yourself, when you're feeling drained, uh, but hopefully you have an advocate in your life who can help make sure that you get that care. The second issue is the um, the, the medical note for the, the workplace. And a lot of workplaces are becoming more lenient with respect to that. They're trusting their employees. You know, it's a big thing to come forward and say, I can't work because my health is compromised. And very few people say that, you know, in, in, say that frivolously. And there is some issue with it, doctors spending time on, on writing the notes because they want to spend time on care. So sometimes it's a little bit longer. So have a conversation with your employer. You might be surprised in terms of how you can negotiate what it, what you need in order to manage this period of time. And your employer might have some solutions around getting access to a physician as well. I'm talking to Paula Allen. She's a friend of the show and a wonderful person to chat with about this kind of stuff and my pal. Uh, she's the global leader and, C- and uh, senior vice president at research and total well-being at LifeWorks. Paula, it's always a pleasure. We'll have you back on again and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend and get ready for the snow on Monday. Uh, we're <laughs> talking about whether uh, whether you should be uh, going back to work, even if you're not feeling the, that, that, that great. And you do have some rights under the, uh, under the human rights um, uh, um, act to to actually stay home if you're not well. You don't want to be uh, dealing with your your your, your employer that way, but uh, you do have rights. And if you're not well and you need to take the time off, um, there are legal remedies if your your boss or your employer isn't prepared to play along. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about uh, masking. I know you don't want to talk about it, but if we're going to wear one, let's learn how to wear one properly, especially for you and your kids. I see lots of people walking around where the sides of them are you know wide open. Lots of particles can get in there. It's completely useless. If you're going to be uncomfortable, you may as well wear something that's going to do the job. Hey, listen, you ever been uh, out and uh, visiting with family and friends or family dinner, let's say Christmas time, for example, where it's just becomes a bit of a, just a, a mess, you know, people saying not nice things to each other and talking about one another in ways that are really negative. You know, my mother used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, is that like what goes on at your house or is it, oh my God, I can't believe my aunt said that or my mother's making me crazy about getting married or being too heavy or being too thin. Well, I want to talk to you about that. And, you know, if your holiday dinner went a little too far, maybe you walked out of there going, saying something that you're shaking your head now going, mm, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I want you to know that people do that. And you know what? Sometimes relationships, even when they're family relationships, maybe especially when they're family relationships, can often be extremely toxic. I tell you, in the work that I do with patients that have addiction issues and mental health, sometimes the biggest triggers in their lives come from family family members and those that are actually the closest. Why? Because we reduce our, our barriers and we let people in when they're close to us because we figure, wow, they can't possibly hurt us, right? So the idea of family is one that always sticks together regardless of the situation, kind of like you see on TV, you know, the Cleavers, if you're old enough to remember Beaver Cleaver or, you know, any of the shows that are on TV today that show families as being, you know, all together and they never have harsh words for one another. That's not a realistic situation in most houses today in 2022. So estrangement actually happens all the time for all kinds of reasons. It's usually because you say something stupid or someone says something stupid to you and then you walk away from each other going, okay, I'm done. 
I never want to have this conversation again. I never want to see you again. We're done. So it can be because of different feelings, different beliefs. They don't like your boyfriend. They don't like your girlfriend. They don't like your choices, your hair color. Well, you have a beard, don't have a beard. Sometimes it's abusive. Sometimes it's just disagreements about who you like, who you don't like, who you're married to. Sometimes that's a big deal. How about overbearing parents or grandparents? For sure, that's a big issue. And lots of people refuse to apologize. And then for years and years and years, you don't talk to one another. So it's all about boundaries and setting uh, proper um, relationship structures that make your relationship with the people in your lives healthy and beneficial. If you're in a relationship that doesn't make you feel good about yourself, hmm, probably shouldn't be in that relationship. So we have an expert here with us tonight. Her name is Michelle Anang, and she's a personal uh, family and career counsel specializing in family relationships. So she's going to talk to us and talk us through why we might feel some pressure to repair relationships with family. And maybe we should and maybe we shouldn't. But we're going to go to Michelle because she's really the expert. Good evening, Michelle, and welcome to Road to Recovery. Hi there. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm full of energy because it is, after all, a celebration here tonight. So the holidays are a really tense time for a lot of people when it comes to family relationships. Uh, seems to be taboo to talk about it, though, right? What are some of the biggest concerns and worries that your clients, your, your patients express when the holiday season draws near or perhaps post-holiday season when they come to you when they're really messed up? Well, I think you named all of them. Just, uh, yeah, the family <laughs> dynamics, <laughs> the dread over who's going to be doing what, who will say what, uh, just, yeah, mentally preparing themselves for it beforehand and, yeah, looking forward to hearing next week when I'm back at work, what, uh, what has come up for people and, and moving forward but from the it, holidays. Do you also find, I mean, I certainly find in my practice, but I'm sure you do in yours, that generally the most toxic relationships are, you, are really the ones closest to us. It's typically not, you know, a stranger, a friend, somebody at work. Um, how, do we, how do we reconcile that? That, mm. you know, we want to be close. We want to have these tight relationships, but it also requires us being vulnerable and open How do we keep ourselves from maybe getting burnt with that opportunity or in that opportunity? Yeah, I think, I mean, the work always starts with us uh, learning how we can uh, better our our communication skills, always about doing our personal work, recognizing what our triggers are um, and and trying to to mitigate that, uh, navigate around that. What's, you know, taking responsibility for our part in the dynamic because all family relationships are a dance. It does involve all the parties. It's not just one person's fault. So just recognizing what our role in in all of this is, that's the starting point. And then, you know, communicating what our wishes are. Um, I always say, you know, even just having conversations with family members and um, letting them know what your intention is. You know, I want this to be better. I want us to be able to communicate better. Um, You know, seeing where it goes from there. Sometimes, very often, we need professional support too. We need somebody who's objective (laughs) that can step in and, and kind of mediate the conversation depending on how, how heated it could get or how emotional it can get. So, we, uh, if, yeah. if, you're, if you're just jumping in right now, we're talking to uh, Michelle Anang, and she's a uh, counselor specializing in family and career and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so I, I often hear from people, and I'm sure so do you, and the, the term codependent uh, in relationships. And, and, you, and you really hit on it when you said it's a two-way street. You know, it's never, it's never just about your mother. It's about your, my relationship with my mother or girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, right? Um, this concept of codependency, maybe you can kind of dumb it down for people and make it simple to understand that people, oh, I have a codependent relationship with my mother. They really don't know what that means. What does it mean? 
Ah, codependent. Let's see, how do I define that? Uh, well, the way I see it is um, those, and I am a recovering codependent myself. So, uh, yes, yeah, starting out with, um, first of all, finding that we need um, somebody else, uh, the belief that we need somebody else to fill our needs. I think that's that's one of the core basics of, of codependency, um, you know, having expectations, being involved, losing ourselves in relationship as well, of just giving and giving and giving to the point that we have nothing left um, and we are completely enmeshed with the person. Uh, I, I use the metaphor of, of the roller coaster uh, where, you know, we will all get on the roller coaster and go through the highs and lows. We're not individually, you know, responsible for our own roller coaster rides. We think that we are all responsible for each other's and we will go through all those ups and downs, but to a point that's not healthy and, so, and lacks boundaries. You know, uh, what, and, and boundaries are great words for our segue. I don't know how much time we've got, but let's get in as much, get in as, much as we can. Um, mm. the, 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 when people cross your boundaries and people understand what boundaries are, I, you know, I refuse to allow my so-and-so to, to, to do this to me ever again or whatever. Those are boundaries based on choices. When, someone, when a family member or loved one crosses that boundary, what's, what's a kind of a, a simple way to resurrect that boundary and put it back into, back into check? Just stating it. You know, we, we often, that's such a big part. And, and it's a part of codependency as well as kind of the secrecy and keeping things in. So just saying, you know, that's, that's a boundary. These are my boundaries. Please don't cross them. And then letting people know too, that if the boundary is crossed, this is what's going to happen. So if you speak to me in this tone or using this kind of language, expect that I will walk away and I will not participate in this conversation. That's setting a healthy boundary. You know, uh, people find themselves constantly around the holiday season, you know, whether it's uh, Christmas time, Hanukkah, Easter, uh, whatever, some holiday season. Um, they People find that it's a pressure, they feel pressured to uh, try to resurrect a relationship, kind of, you know, set it up before they get to the party so that it isn't really a, you know, a mess when they get there. Um, is that a guilt? You know, when, when people are driven by that kind of guilt, for example, and you're in a situation with like that, and you're trying to resurrect a relationship. What happens when you come across a, a fam familiar relationship or someone close to you, but they don't really want to put the relationship back together? At what point do you say, I've done what I can and, you know, and walk away? Um, I don't think there's a clearly defined um, point, but I think we all know when we reach it. I know I've reached that in, in certain relationships in my life and in my family as well. And, and in certain friendships of just, this doesn't feel good anymore. This is feeling bad more than it feels good. And we kind of know, we, we have that sense. It's one of, it's, I, I don't believe that estrangement or, you know, creating harsher, not harsher boundaries, but stronger boundaries, uh, they don't come out of the blue. It's usually something we've been thinking about for a long time and, and we know when it has to happen. So I think trusting our intuition and, and our gut is probably the best way to go. Uh, I think we have a little bit of time left. I'm going to ask you a question. When is it? When is it not selfish? People feel like, well, if I put up my patients tell me all the time, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to put the boundaries. But I just feel so selfish. How do people have to understand? Can you help people understand that putting up boundaries isn't a selfish act, although it is self care driven. Yes, it is never selfish. I think I say this 10 times a day to different clients of self-care and boundaries are not selfish. They are healthy. Um, 
everybody needs to know what, what our boundaries are. This is how we can have healthy relationships is just, you know, creating, creating those boundaries, knowing what each person is okay with, what they are not okay with. And then deciding from that place, you know, if somebody says here, these are my boundaries, if you're not okay with it, you, you have permission to walk away. Uh, but I think it's, you know, so culturally driven, society driven, uh, this idea that, you know, if, if you take care of yourself, that you are selfish, and it, it is so untrue. It's, uh, you know, really an outdated theory that we need to <laughs> get over. So here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is you're a phenomenal guest. And the bad news is now you're on our list. So <laughs> you're going to be called on again. I'm talking with Michelle Ananga, excellent therapist, great advice. How do people find you if they need some help? I don't have that information. Thank you. you yes. And up? actually, I am a coach, not a therapist. So oh, I excellent. did want to make that, that clarification because I don't have, uh, I have different training. Okay. Uh, but people can reach me on my website, which is michelleanhang.com. Uh, or you can find me all over so- social media. I'm, I'm everywhere. Look up Michelle Anhang or Michelle Anhang Coaching and you will find me. Okay, Coach. Well, uh, you'll be hearing from us again. I hope you have an incredible New Year's Day and stay out of that codependent relationship. We're talking with Michelle <laughs> Anhang, uh, a coach and, uh, and a family counselor. When you get into an accident, you know, if you, it's that kind of accident where cops actually have to show up. They actually show up. And these are the traffic cops. These are the people that are out there dealing with um, road traffic and uh, all the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with that. Uh, months ago, I, 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 we found a, an expert on, uh, on um, traffic law, uh, and uh, he joined us. And uh, we've been continued to be friends. Um, his name is Sean Shapiro. He's a police constable uh, in Toronto here. Uh, but we, um, we became friends because I started following him on his live stream chats and videos. And uh, we have him with us here tonight because he does stay awake late. And uh, other than shoveling snow, he's probably not too busy because he does his work in the morning. Sean, welcome to the show. And I didn't realize that you're really underneath the uniform, that beautiful smile. You're a broadcaster. I, I, I Apparently, I'm doing a lot of things, including broadcasting. We're having a great time on social media. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. From where we were uh, a year ago to now, it's, it, you wouldn't believe it. Would you ever thought such? I mean, how long have you been on the job, brother? I've been with the service for 21 years. I started as a as an auxiliary, as a volunteer, became a court officer, and then transitioned to police constable. And uh, never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be a face on social media and media, you know, speaking about the, the job and safety. So is this something that you kind of suggested was going to, uh, that something you were interested in doing or kind of how did this come about? How did we get the Ask PC Sean Shapiro uh, segments out there? Did the service come to you and say, hey, great smile, great, uh, great voice, and let's get you? Or did you kind of kind of set this up at some level? It, it, to say that it happened by accident is it couldn't be truer. It happened because I was involved in a motorcycle collision as a motor squad officer. I was on my motorcycle heading back to the station and someone pulled out of a parking lot of a gas station and we met in the middle and had a, had a collision. So I was, I was out of the game and I'm still out of the game. I can't go on the road. I'm, I'm injured. I have a disability. Uh, well, at least that's the classification because I am not able to uh, currently f- perform my function uh, on the road. I can't get in a police car and take off and do my thing. Uh, so I was accommodated. I was put into another position so I could still do useful work. And then this sort of happened by accident. I was a graphic artist, a photographer. Uh, I, I started doing all the social media uh, design and, and production. And then one day I, I just started doing some video segments. And those video segments ended up going on t- uh, onto Twitter. And uh, and then we said, well, there's an investigation about some kids that were skateboarding off the Gardner Expressway. I don't know if you remember hearing that story. Sure I do. Yeah. Well, 
that was on TikTok. So I had to create a TikTok account. Now, before that day, TikTok was about, you know, kids doing dances and themes yeah. and jokes. And it wasn't yeah. something for the police to get involved in. Yeah. But things changed. And we put up content and it took off. And, you know, that was the start of something amazing. And then one day I said, hey, what's this button that says go live? And now I go live every day. And uh, we, we speak <laughs> to sometimes 2,500 people in a room, 25,000 people over an hour asking their questions, just, uh, you know, want to know what's going on. And we, and we answer their questions live. Amazing. Amazing. I, 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 and, you know, surprisingly, not surprisingly, but you, you are so good at it. Um, so let's, you know, we're talking about, you know, one day we had 38 views, one day you had 21 views, one day you had 41 views. Um, well, you know, your view, you're, 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 some, come, some you come in from LinkedIn. Yeah, maybe whatever YouTube, whatever, it doesn't matter. YouTube 2.1, <laughs> uh, the two, two and a half, two point one thousand, a thousand and a half, a thousand three. Like you got all, you got some serious traction here, brother. I don't think, I don't think I'm getting that many listeners on my show. Um, well, so I'm, I'm hoping maybe you'll have me on someday. To, you know, I would love, well, I, I'd love to bring you onto the show. Uh, the, the, but here's the deal. Uh, what you're seeing is, so I, I simulcast. So when I go online and, and I'm and the, the view that you're seeing when you're on LinkedIn or YouTube is is going out on on Twitter, uh, Twitch, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, multiple Facebook accounts. It goes on to the ones for Sean Shapiro. It goes on the ones for the service. But our biggest audience is on TikTok. We have 554,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. We are the number one educational police channel in North America. And uh, wow. we have people from all over the world. People jump in and say, hey, I'm from Australia, from Ireland. I, I had some people from Germany jumping in. It's it's really amazing. And and that's our live segment. And the people who are consuming our, our canned or, or, or uh, pre-taped content, uh, it, we have videos. That, one video about tint, somebody lost their mind. They didn't like it. 6.6 yeah. 6 yeah. million views on one video. It's 27 <laughs> seconds long. That's amazing. I mean, truly, that's amazing. So obviously, you have a job when you finish the service. You'll, Possibly. You'll open, you'll, you'll open yourself a YouTube channel and make all kinds of cash. Uh, you'll be selling underwear and T-shirts and batons and nightlights and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, but seriously, uh, uh, like what type of – give me an idea of the type of uh, question you might get on an average day. Like are you, are you sharing a story as you – like give me an idea how you do your, your, do your show. I've, I've listened to parts of it. I, I seem to be able to jump sure. in and out. But, um, you know, are you, do you start with a, with a sort of a theme for the day or you, you let the audience uh, direct it, your uh, content? It is entirely choose your own adventure. And we've had a, we've experimented with a whole lot of different things, and and there are obviously messages that we look forward to sharing, but they they really come organically. You know, someone brings up a topic, I end up in a story about something afterwards. But we we focus on tint as uh, as as one of our viewers says uh, is is probably one of our number one topics and and you know what's the legal what's the, the legality of tint how much over the speed limit can you go uh can i get a ticket for speeding what happens if i get charged or suspended and, and they just have lots and lots of questions other people are like i having a hard time getting my g2 or my g because of the pandemic what do i do any tips like it is so organic and it's it's really it as a police officer having the opportunity to help hundreds if not thousands of people during an hour and actually hundreds of thousands now we're honest to god 2500 people in a room watching and uh they come in for a minute some stay for the entire hour we have people who show up every single day we have moderators who are volunteering to even help answer questions in the comments because it's just so busy everybody wants to to know what's going on and, and get safer and avoid tickets so we're helping them do all those things have you, you think of you, have you impacted, um, you know, yourself? First of all, how long have you been doing this, Sean? This is, we started in 
March of last year when we really was, I opened the account the year before the, and we didn't use it. We just had it for the investigation. Uh, and then March is when we started and we went, you know, I thought success was hitting 18,000 followers because that's what we had on Twitter. And then we got to 50,000 and a hundred thousand. And then overnight we had what that 6 million video uh, view and we ended up with 300,000 new followers. We had five, we just, it hasn't ever stopped. And every time we think we've hit our peak and that we're going to plateau and that's it, we get another hundred thousand or 50. Like it, it's just, I, it's unpredictable. It's amazing. We really developed a community and uh, I appreciate them as much as hopefully they appreciate me. Are you at, are you in a studio in your home? Or are you in a studio in the in the uh, precinct somewhere or in the division? So I, I we we had an idea. We shuffled some uh, some some uh, furniture. I used a uh, pop up uh, display that we used to use for trade shows because that's how we used to interact. We'd set up a trade yep. show. We go to the yep. boat show, the bike show. Yep. So I used that as a background. We had some uh, some uh, fake uh, or or replica street signs. I stuck those with thumbtacks to the wall, and that was my studio. So it's at work, and uh, I, I used all my own equipment for the first year. And the service is is loving what's going on. They've invested in it. They bought their own equipment, and now my equipment has come home, and that's what I'm using right now for my basement. But uh, you know it. I now can, if I, if I, if I, I was on vacation, I took vacation for a week. I stayed in this every morning. I went live so people uh, uh, could still have contact. That's amazing. And, and I can hear in your voice, this is something that really, uh, really connects for you and really is, uh, I can hear how excited you are about doing it. Um, any other, any other groups, any other divisions, any other, I know you're, you're a traffic cop. And by the way, we're talking to uh, PC Sean Shapiro. Um, what exactly is the name? How, how do how does somebody how do we tell somebody to listen into you on a, on, a, on a, in the mornings? So the segment's called Ask a Traffic Cop. So if you search the hashtag Ask a Traffic Cop, you'll find us. But we our, our username on uh, Twitter, if you want to follow us there, is Traffic Services. On the, the same on TikTok, uh, we're Traffic Services Toronto on Instagram Live, where we also broadcast. We have a YouTube channel, which is Traffic Services Toronto Police, and uh, it's all going out at the same time. Of course, our, our largest content pool or, or uh, you know source of information, if you want to go and look at hundreds of hours of, of content, you can go and do that on our uh, uh on our tiktok page where we have over 500 videos at this point uh which and, and I, I like to throw humor into it it's got to be entertaining no of one's course. gonna watch boring videos uh but so so i have fun making it uh, it's educational and we, we've had such great feedback i mean folks who, who we've actually put a survey out recently uh and we we are looking for feedback to get an idea of who's watching us what are they getting out of it how do we make it better because it's at the end of the day it's a product it's all about them we you know it's all about the viewers it's all about helping them get the information they want it's remarkable. I was going to ask you if any other units do it, like homicide or youth gang or gun violence. Any of these people have anything going like you've got? Nothing like we've got in particular. We are, I think, a standalone in the uh, in in North America at very least. I, I can't speak for the rest of the world. Uh, and we're we're in direct connection with TikTok. We talk to them on a regular basis, and we have all the police uh, users in uh, North America that uh, that are on an email list, and we try and stay current. But we're the largest, and uh, we're the only one doing the live Q and A at very at very least. We're the only one doing the live. Uh, Q and a, uh, daily Monday to Friday, there is Brooks, Alberta, who does a, a, a live as well. They're an RCMP detachment and they've started doing it. Uh, but we, we they're, they're onboarding and bringing on more uh, police services all the time. I had a call from a chap in uh, Chicago. He's the media officer out there for Chicago police. And he says, listen, we love what you're doing. want to do exactly what you're doing over there. Can you help us? And I'm happy to help any police service that wants to get this level of engagement and, uh, and, and broaden their, their reach and, and to a different market. Like we're talking to people that we could never talk to before. Uh, we have young people who are on the platform and, uh, you know, we, uh, 
uh, we, we chat about all sorts of things. Uh, but I've also had people reach out to me for other reasons. Off, you know, you're a friendly guy. It sounds like you, uh, you might be able to help me. And, we, and we've had some interesting chats about some things that were less fun topics, right? Someone who was, uh, you know, feeling about uh, ending their life and they, they reached out and we ended up getting them some help. I'll tell you something, buddy. You know where, how, how I feel about you, and I'm uh, so impressed. But I now realize the backstory, and uh, I think uh, clearly whatever uh, led to that uh, horrible event where you ended up in this accident, somehow, some way, there's uh, some guidance going on here because sounds to me, my brother, like you've, uh, you've, like Stella's found his groove, so to speak, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're excellent at it, and want to continue to uh, to give you uh, give you uh, support as much as we can. We'll have you back on again. I want to, I want just going to continue maybe from time to time as maybe some serious traffic stuff starts to happen. Uh, we'll get you back on again, but um, remarkable Anytime job. You want. Yeah, buddy. Remarkable job. Great voice. You're, you're so good at it. Uh, I'm talking to my friend, Sean Shapiro. He's with Toronto police services. Uh, you can reach him or find out from about his uh, program. Hashtag ask a traffic cop and uh, you get out to him and uh, he's a lot of fun to listen to. I, I do listen in and, uh, Number one, he knows what he's talking about. And number two, he makes it fun. So, you know, traffic law may not be the greatest thing to be thinking about, but it may, in fact, save your life, and he's the guy to listen to. I do a wellness check every Thursday uh, at 9 p.m. on on point with um, Alex Pearson, and uh, that's uh, at 9 p.m. on Thursdays. It's called Wellness Check. Please join us there as well. And um, we have uh, – I want to share my discussion, my, my visit with Alex this past Thursday as we talk about – this subject and the, this, you know, the, the issues with fentanyl in our system, our drug system, and uh, what we're uh, the suffering that people are going on and, and dealing with as a result of this. Uh, have a listen, and we'll be right back here. Earlier this week, a study caught my eye, which reported that half of those who died from opiate overdoses in 2020 actually looked for help the month before. They actually went to an emergency and uh, were turned away for whatever reason. But when you look at the issue here, I mean, opiate overdoses have skyrocketed during this pandemic when you look to the period of March 2020 to December 2020 by 77%. And data that was released before the holidays in 2021 suggests we could start seeing about 2,000 opiate deaths monthly in the coming months. So what this report seems to show is that addicts out there are trying to find help in our healthcare system only to die because the help's not available. And um, as you know, I mean, when you're in crisis, barriers are a death sentence. Yeah, 100%. I think that uh, it's obvious if you can't get the help you need when you need it, and uh, you're one of the fortunate few that get to the point where you actually have the energy and the strength to ask for the help, and then it's turned away, mm -hmm. a couple of things happen. Number one, you know, we see people die and fall off, and, so, and the other is that people lose interest and faith and respect for the system, and uh, they eventually, you know, also end up in on death's row. So it's it's a it's a terrible situation. And what's what's interesting here is not all of the deaths are quote unquote uh, drug abuse, um, are people with a, a drug abuse or substance abuse disorder. Mm -hmm. Some, some, a lot of, some of these deaths, I'm not sure what percentage, um, are people who are re weekend or, you know, recreational users and end up mm -hmm. in a, in a bad situation, end up in a hospital, uh, for an overdose and they're sent home. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, a, a lot of them are, are just not being treated properly once we get to the door of the help. Uh, that's available. And uh, that's where we're failing people. We're, we're, even when they walk through the door, through the lineups and whatever, they get to us. We're doing not, not doing a great job of helping them when they get there. So where do they go? Back out into the streets. 
Yeah, and we don't know why someone would go to the hospital or it didn't give us any context to the situation at hand or why they were, you know, turned away. But oftentimes, as you know, an addict will go to the emergency and it seems like, and I'm not putting the blame on, on frontline staff because they are absolutely swamped, but they get shuffled around or maybe the needs don't get taken seriously because our system is so strained that we can hardly handle health crises, but we have almost zero supports for actual mental health care um, emergency supports in this country a and navigating the system it is very very difficult well especially now and listen I'm nothing against my brothers and sisters in healthcare. they do a great job and you know they do the best they can but I can't tell you how often weekly it's it's multiple times weekly where I'm on the phone with somebody in a different jurisdiction that we just can't get to and help and you know going through their situation and the, I tell them you know first thing you got to do is like go to emerge tell them you're having a hard time you want to get off the drugs or alcohol it happens with alcohol as well you know you, you, you have you need some help you, you need a, you know a few meds to get you past the withdrawal and maybe a, a referral to a program and, you know, and 12 hours later, they call me and they say, you know, sent me home, gave me some IV and uh, sent me home. So um, it, it's frustrating because it, it has to be emergency rooms as, as difficult as it is for the operators of them um, are, are a place where people are going to walk in that are in need and need to be at least directed somewhere where they can get their needs met. And if it's not in an emergency ward, then maybe it's in the withdrawal management center somewhere or in some mm. form of clinic or, or something. Uh, obviously, it's not in place yet. We just desperately needed. Uh, they need to go somewhere, but they're the, they're the net. So if the yeah. net is broken, then what happens is they fall through the net and we end up with lots of deaths. And like you said in the onset, the numbers are going to be soaring. It's, it's going to be oh, yeah. out of control in years to come. Yeah, we call it collateral damage. It's, it's, it just desensitizes people. But, you know, we, we always hear about the injection sites, which are the only solution, apparently. But what bothers me is, to your point, you know, if someone's addicted and going actively to, to find the help, we just don't have the options to help them in that moment. You know, we don't have, um, you know, readily available rehabilitation centers to say, hey, come on, come with me. We can get your rehab right now. You got to get on a waiting list. And, and, and frankly, it's expensive. So we just don't have a system in place for that. Because ultimately, isn't it kinder, Yona, to get people freed of their addiction? I mean, we've, we seem to have turned this conversation of keeping people imprisoned, uh, you know, facing almost a certain death, and that that's the only treatment. Yeah, and then switching them from you know uh, you know heroin to methadone or suboxone, which is an opioid under its uh, opioid opiate as well. You know, oh, we're switching. You know, there's people thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this country that line up daily to get their methadone drink and then go back to work. Uh, they're not free of anything. So, but let me ask you something. You know, we had a whole bunch mm -hmm. of. I think you and I had this tent discussion a few weeks ago yeah. about another subject. You know, so what's a big deal to throw up a tent or two at the back of Sunnybrook or the back of yeah. St. Joe's or the back of you know uh, one of the buildings somewhere downtown or an empty building somewhere downtown? What's the big deal to throw up something and get a little help from the military and put together withdrawal management centers, help people get through it if they can't give them a short-term methadone supply? You know, have some have students come in that are lear that desperate to learn to do some clinical work. Uh, that are in social work or in addiction counseling programs or all forms of psychiatric programs and psychology programs, have them come and work the floor, so to speak, and we can help these people for not a whole lot of money. So yeah. no, one's well, yeah, I mean, no we, one's listening. Well, also no one's thinking outside the box. I mean, obviously we don't have a military big enough to keep you know trying to do the Band-Aid work of our healthcare system, but we do have... Certainly students, and, and there are people, We, if we think outside the box, we could right. come up with, with a solution. I just don't, 
I, I don't know, um, maybe it'll be in the aftermath when we start actually putting names and faces to all of the people who have been damaged in this pandemic uh, response, who have, you know, been ignored because COVID was the priority. One day there's going to be a reckoning, uh, Yana, where people say like, what, did these lives not matter? Whether it's the opiate uh, addict or the child who's been destroyed by an eating disorder or, 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 I mean, I, I believe we're in for a wall of shame coming in the next couple of years. Yeah, I do too, and it's unfortunate because you can see the you can see the wave mm -hmm. coming. You can see yeah. the wave coming. I, I mean, you can see it. I can see it. And people are that of the in the know or in this industry or reporting on it, like you do so well. You know, it, we're seeing it. You see the wave coming up from the ocean. You know what it's going to do. We're going to all drown in it. And you know, it, we're just not set up for it. We're not going to be in a position to manage it. And it's a much it's a much more difficult thing than just wearing a mask and getting a few injections and hoping it's going to be okay. This is stuff is so deep and so yeah. so you know uh, entrenched in a person's psyche that year and year you know into two years three years of this kind of pandemic thinking you know people who were quote unquote in good had good mental health at you know prior to this many of them yeah. can just no longer hang on and um, mm -hmm. we we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg unfortunately no I mean thank God for guys like you uh, who help uh, open a line to to uh, talk. Well, there you have it. That was my discussion with my good friend uh, Alex Pearson on On Point on Thursday evening. Join us next week as we talk about different things on the Wellness Check. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know there was an awful lot to take in. Uh, I hope some of it uh, sunk in where it needed to.